Good morning. I see somebody left a box of Kleenex up here for me. (laughs) Good morning. Hey, we're in the book of James. Uh, Really, it's a letter that he wrote. It's a part of our New Testament. And at this point, we've... uh, We've covered the first three chapters, and we have been in chapter four. Again, we're in chapter... uh, Chapter four, 11 through chapter five, verse six. And uh, we're in chapter four, verses 13 through 17 of of this, this section of uh, what James is writing, and uh, there's kind of a bit of a theme here, which I've tried to represent. Uh, Without room for God, people can be filled with self-righteousness, and without room for God, plans can be filled with self-reliance rather than reliance upon God. And without room for God, prosperity can be filled with self-indulgence. So if you're picking up on this, making room for God is about kind of stepping aside for God so that it's not all about me. It's not all about you. And last week, or two weeks ago, when we were last in this section, I was kind of trying to pick us up on some things to make room for God. We need to enlarge our sense of humility, our dependence upon God, and enlarge our sense of reality, not a world that is oftentimes kind of falsified by our emphasis upon ourselves, thinking then that we're much more than we are, and enlarging our sense of fidelity, faithfulness, trust, dependence, upon God, relying upon him. And so I want us to look at James uh, 4, 11 through 5, 6. We'll, we'll focus on verses 13 through 17. I have five things that I want to just point out to you from these verses, but let me read the whole section starting at verse 11 of chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor, which brings The second part of the great commandment, the great commandment, the centerpiece of Jesus' teaching, love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh just like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who moved your, mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Well, as you can see, you won't want to miss next Sunday, Lord willing. That will be exciting. But as we look at a final time at verses 13 through 17, if the Lord wills in verse 15 is really a centerpiece. And this is James' way of saying, make room for God. Don't let pride fool you into thinking that we don't need God, that we don't need his help, that we don't need the orientation of our relationship to who he is to properly, wisely, and realistically live in this world and navigate this life. I thank God for my sight. I don't take it for granted. Even though I have my sight, I can't see all that I need to see. I had uh, a couple people in my life that they didn't, have, they didn't have any physical sight. They were blind, both very, very capable. capable. Um, one was a friend in a church that I, where I pastored, and, and one was a student that I continue to keep in touch with, Chris Hansen, both so capable. Amazing how they would take notes in, in Braille and, and just do it, it, almost everything that anyone else with sight could do. But yet, when walking with Chris, for example, I could see into the future, so to speak, into the distance. I could see what was coming toward us. I could see what stood in the way. He could not. And he accepted my help when I offered it. But that gives us an understanding of the difference between, perhaps uh, it gives us an understanding of the difference between the foresight that God has compared to the sight or sightlessness 
that we have. We call his sight providence. It comes from the Latin pro, before, ahead of, in front of, videre. Well, that has to do, actually, they would say videre, but we get our word video from the Latin verb to see. To see ahead, to see before, to see in front, that's God's providence. He can see far more than we can, and it's smart and wise to make room for God. James does, and Paul does too, the apostle Paul. I thought, I thought it interesting, <clears throat> I looked up, uh, I didn't know if Paul said, Lord willing. I found that he did. In Acts 18.21, as he was about to leave the Ephesians and set sail, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail. I really believe he hoped to return. I believe he had a reunion with them in his heart. I think he hoped for that. But whereas we may have plans in our heart, God directs our steps. Proverbs 16.9 says that very thing, and that's all that Paul is acknowledging. I have it in my heart to come and see you again. I hope it comes soon. I hope I see you again. But God directs our steps. Romans, in the first chapter, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, God's my witness. I'm always praying that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. In other words, he kind of sees life day to day, doesn't he? He knows God's going to open doors or close doors. God's going to make a way or close a way. God directs his steps. Romans chapter 15, verses 30 through 32. Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19, he says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7, I, I, don't, I do not want to see you now just in passing. In other words, I hope to stay a lot longer he says, I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I will come also. Now, he's not just saying this on Facebook or Twitter for likes. He's making room for God. J.I. Packer, in his concise theology, says this about God's providence, God's ability to see what we can't see. He writes, the doctrine of providence teaches us that we are never in the grip of blind forces. Well, what would blind forces be? Well, we call blind forces fortune, chance, luck, 
fate. No, he says, we're not in the grip of blind forces. All that happens to us is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. Now, James says something similar right at the beginning of his writing, the very opening. I mean, first he kind of gives us a salutation, but then he goes right on and he says something like this. He says, he says, look, count it all joy when you face difficulties of every kind, knowing that there's meaning in your trials because you put your faith in God. And if you need wisdom, he says, Ask God, he'll give it to you. He loves to give it to you. He'll give it to you. Now that's verses two through five. Where do you get that kind of thinking? Well, surely part of the answer is Proverbs three, five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, that means without exception. Acknowledge him. Admit he's there. Admit he cares. Admit he's good. Admit he wants to be involved in your life. Admit he's not asleep. Admit all the things that you know about God in a personal way. In all your ways, that's what acknowledge him means. He'll make your your paths straight. And where did he get that? Where where did the writer get that? Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. I'm going to put it in different words. We know it as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, the Lord alone. Love him with all your heart. Love him with all your soul. Love him with all your strength. But here's how I'd like to say it to you. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. There's only one God. Love him with all your heart, all your being, all your strength, because he's worthy. He loves you. He made you. You are his creation. You are the apple of his eye. He cares about you. Don't ignore him. Set your mind on him. Set your heart on him. Find your strength in him. Let your being have meaning because of him. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, the Apostle John says, we love because he first loved us. Think about that. How often when you think of God, do you think about his great love for you? If you really think about it, if you really know it, if you really feel it, 
you love in return. It just makes you want to love to know God's love. I'm trying to humanize in a very personal way because James is kind of chastising the people he's writing to. You know, he's giving them a little bit of a tongue lashing. You ought to say, that's the way he puts it, you're boasting in your pride, in your arrogance. (laughs) You ought to say, Lord willing, make room for God. That's what he's asking them to do. And perhaps with them, it would work a little better if he dressed them down a bit, made them see themselves clearly a bit, made them, you know, kind of get their minds off themselves and onto the Lord. Why? Because they were full of self-reliance rather than God-reliance. Self-reliance, I really believe this, self-reliance can turn the Christian life into just nothing but a tool to be picked up and used in our own service when it seems helpful. But that's not a relationship with the living God. That's a whole different story. Can you imagine if you lived with God getting up in the morning and ignoring him, going to the breakfast table, pouring your cup of coffee and not offering him a cup, turning on the television and not asking him what he might want to watch, eating the last of the bread, drinking the last of the milk out of the milk carton without even giving him a thought. What kind of a roommate would that be? It kind of puts it in perspective, you see, because that's the way we live our lives. We think he's over there busy with someone else and he doesn't know what we're doing or what we're up to. See, without room for God, our plans can be filled with self-reliance. I, uh, when I was a, a young man in high school, a song became very popular. I did it my way. It was sung by Frank Sinatra, and it was on the radio without break. I went back and I read the words this week. Oh, my goodness. It's all about me. All about me. Oswald Chambers, I read just uh, three weeks ago. Actually, I read it on October. Uh, on August 12th, that's more than three weeks, but it seems like only three weeks. But on August 12th, the reading of of Oswald Chambers uh, was from Matthew 8.26, O ye of little faith. And this is what he says, and I saved it for today, see, I knew I was gonna get to this. When Jesus was fast asleep, by the way, they were in the middle of the Galilee, uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, vast body of water, and it, it, it can churn up a storm, and they're out there, they're fishermen, and Jesus is in the boat, and they're, they see him, and he's just fast asleep in the midst of the storm. That is a gift, to be able to sleep like that. That's peace of mind. That's a clear conscience. That's a a whole soul, you know? 
You and I can have that kind of peace, you know, unless we have some kind of a malady or illness that keeps us awake, but we don't want it to be a disturbed soul or an ill conscience. But anyway, the, the boat is being swamped with water and Jesus is sleeping and the disciples yell out, Lord, don't you see the boat is sinking? And he says, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. And this is what Oswald Chambers says. He says, when we are afraid, the least we can do is pray to God. But our Lord has a right to expect that those who name his name have an underlying confidence in him. God expects his children to be so confident in him that in any crisis, they are the ones who are reliable. Did you catch that? When we rely on God, we become the people who are reliable. When we put our trust in him, we are the people who become trustworthy. When we find our joy in him, we are the people who are joyous. When he is our peace, we are the people at peace. Those things can be confused Outsiders, onlookers, neighbors, friends, people around us can confuse that peace, that trust, that reliability, that faithfulness, that joy as self-reliance. But it is not. It is reliance upon God. And if you think it through and reflect upon it and own it for yourself, make it your own. Not something you heard from me or from Oswald Chambers. Make it your own reality. Then you'll understand that you'll give God the glory when people think, man, what an incredible person you are. You just seem to handle life, you know, with flair or you're unshakable, or you're hopeful, or you're peaceful. And people will see that as strength. And they'll say, where did you get that? Why are you the way you are? And you'll know, and you'll tell them. That's, it's the Lord. This really shows up in the midst of a crisis. In fact, uh, Oswald Chambers says something about that. He says, if, if we have been learning to worship God and to place our trust in him, a crisis will reveal that we can go to the point of breaking yet without breaking our confidence in him. A crisis reveals upon whom we rely. 
And whenever I've been in a crisis or in a hard time or a difficult time, it's usually just those times that people go, man, I'm glad I'm not going through what you're going through. But they don't say it that way. They say, man, uh, I'm praying for you. But the reality is, is it is at times like that that you get to say, yeah, I want you to know the Lord is close. I feel your prayers. He helps me through this. He keeps me on my feet. He keeps my my head on straight. Keeps my heart calm. I trust him for what I can't control. I trust him for what I cannot control. It's only a fool who tries to control what is not within his power to control. And yet we do it all the time. I've done it. I'm trying to get smarter. And that's what James is talking about here. He's saying, be smart. Be wise. Trust the Lord. Depend on him. Rely on him. Don't make him an afterthought. Don't make him a guest in his own home. Don't invite him into the world that he created and made and dwells in. Acknowledge him. That's just smart. Try that with other people. Go into their house and act like they aren't the owner. James gives us five reasons to make room for God and rely on him. I'm going to go through these quickly, unless I get started. Verse 14, we we don't know about tomorrow, and it's a good thing. It really is, because if you and I knew that tomorrow, a lot of prosperity was waiting for us. You know what would happen? We'd get kind of reckless and foolish. And it's a good thing we don't know about tomorrow because if we knew about tomorrow and we knew that tomorrow was going to bring some adversity and difficulty and hardship and pain, then we'd just become stiffened with fear and despair. But in his wisdom, God has given us memory to learn from our past, to learn from his faithfulness to us, to learn to trust him completely. I learned in my 30s, it wasn't just like yesterday, to be faithful one day at a time. There have been times in my life when I've had responsibilities that were overwhelming. I just didn't know how I could get done all that I had to get done or how I could get through all that I had to get through. Like when I was pastoring in the Bay Area, I was also doing my PhD. I had two children. Shelly was a great help, but you know I needed to care for her and give her time too writing 70-page papers on top of preaching twice on Sundays and a midweek Bible study and visiting people in the hospital. And then people from Modesto would ask me to go visit people in San Francisco because I was there and they weren't and so forth and so on. 
It's overwhelming. You can become immobilized. You can, be, you can become resentful and bitter. You can hate what you have to do. And it becomes your heaviest burden. What you have to do is prioritize. Do the most important things first. Sometimes you break it down into pieces. And you do all that you can. What I learned was you be faithful one day at a time. And in the morning, what rolls over, you start with that and you be faithful one day at a time. And that's success because you can only be successful one day at a time. To be faithful unto the Lord, to do the best you can, but to do it with the Lord and in his strength, with his hope, with his peace, with his confidence. Oh, that's success. That's faithfulness. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 32 through 34, Jesus is talking about worries. And in verses The last three verses, just those last three verses, 32 through 34, he says, everybody runs after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Think, do you hear that? He knows you need them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Don't fuss over tomorrow. Well, that's my own translation right there. But it's a good one. Don't fuss over tomorrow. Tomorrow will fuss over itself. Each day has its own troubles. Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 People have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Can you imagine? And now they're on the verge of entering the promised land. All that stands between them and their dream, the dream of a generation that is not even able to go into the land they're sold, and all the young people have heard the stories, and now it's going to come true. They have to cross this river, and it is swollen. There's no way they can humanly get across it. Moses cries out to God, help, we're here. What do we do now? And God says, okay, take the ark and take 12, and the priests, and as soon as the ark and the priests carrying it touch the water, just wait and see what happens. And God clears a path. The water rolls up, and they walk across on dry land. And after the last of the people get through the river, God says to Moses, now I want, to, I want you to go back into the dry riverbed, and I want you to get 12 stones, one for each tribe, each big family that makes up the people of God. And I want you to take those 12 stones and I want you to build a monument so that you'll remember what I've done. How often do we build monuments like that to answer prayer? How many times does God step into our life and deliver us in ways that we don't even acknowledge because we just thought it happened? Or we didn't pray so we didn't see God in it but it was answered prayer that we never offered. What if we became thankful for all the good things and we built a monument to each and every one of them 
We went back into the river that God led us through and we built a monument of thanksgiving and acknowledgement. I started doing that after preaching on Joshua years ago. You know what I see when I look over my shoulder? As I'm looking ahead, I see this river, it's so swollen, there's no way I can get across. Or I see this bank of clouds and it's threatening. Maybe I should stop moving forward and take shelter. Or these difficulties, I can't even face them. Lord, what am I gonna do? And as fear starts to set in, as anxiety, frustration, and difficulty, I look back. I look back over the shoulder of my life and across the land of my life are monuments. My life is dotted with monuments to God's care, to God's help, to God's protection, to God's blessing, to God seeing me through a difficulty. Acknowledge Acknowledge him because we don't know about tomorrow. Make room for him because we don't know about tomorrow. Life is brief. James says in verse 14, what's your life? You're a mist, a a puff of smoke. And this is said all through the Old Testament. In fact, these words are practically a quote of Job 7-7, but it's, it's not only there. It's in the Psalms. It's in the Proverbs. It's in the teaching of Jesus. And even James says, he says, your life is a flower. Your life is grass. Isaiah the prophet says, all the people are grass. And what's that mean? Well, we cut our grass. And if we don't water it, The sun scorches it and it dies. It it needs a lot of care. It's not gonna live long. It's not gonna live on its own. It's not gonna make it in this world. Flowers are the same way. They wilt and die. They have a short shelf life. I wish the roses that I buy for Shelley would last. I wish the daisies. I wish they were perpetual, but they aren't. They're gone in a few days. That's our life, James says. Do you think about the shortness of your life? Does it give you perspective on the way you see things, what you value and what you don't? We should all be little philosophers and think about the meaning of life, what our life means, what it's for, how long it lasts, what can we do with it, what can I make of my life? I'm reading a book right now. It's a trilogy and I'm in the second book They were all published separately, but they've been bound together. And I'm in book two called The Crossing by Cormac McCarthy. There's a place in which the character meets a man and they're talking. And the man mentions that he has to leave because there's a funeral that he has to go to. And the stranger says, well, it's in, his, it's in his, the character's words. He, the stranger, said that far from making men reflective or wise, it was his experience that death often leads them to attribute great consequence to trivial things. I found that to be true. When people go to a funeral and they're thinking about the death of a loved one, someone they thought was going to outlive them, Someone that they thought would be in their life, all their life kind of thing. 
all of a sudden they start to think about death and all of a sudden it's the little things that count. When I was diagnosed with cancer in 2012, everything got small. I noticed all the little things, the taste of things, the smell of things, the sight of things. I wasn't concerned about what was over there or around the bend or around the world. I was concerned about what was right in front of me, all the good, and all of a sudden, it all looked good. Everything looked good. I wanted it all, everything that was there the whole time anyway. The things that I was overlooking and looking beyond and not even considering, and all of a sudden, I was wealthy in the little things of life. The taste, the smell, the color, the touch. Life is brief. It's short. But you know what? Whether you live long or short, it's made of little things. And if you don't realize that, you're missing out on life. God helps us. Listen, if you see God as God is, if you grow to know him as he is, and who he is, you will be very small. And that will be a good thing, because you will appreciate small things. You will not take things for granted, and you will value the little blessings and things of life. Three, acknowledge God is our God in all things. Well, I've been saying a lot about that, haven't I? What does it mean, though? Lord willing. If the Lord wills. Well, for me, it means, God, you can interrupt me. You can get into my business. You can crowd me. You can tap me on the shoulder and get my attention. And that's very, very important. I do want to say a couple of things, though, because... To acknowledge God as our God in all things, it's so important to realize God is good. And when we're in a relationship with him, it's like prayer. We think of prayer on our knees, prayer with, in groups, a prayer list, all of those things, but prayer is, it, it's gotta include a consciousness of God, an awareness of God, a talking to God without words. That's prayer too. I think Paul has that kind of prayer in mind when in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 he says, because he says, pray without ceasing. Be aware of God all the time. Anywhere and everywhere. Two quick quotes. Tim Keller says, and this is about prayer, since I'm talking about thinking about God and being prayer in a kind of a condition of talking to God. If we knew all that God knew, we would answer all our prayers the same way he does. I think that's just beautiful. Because that tells me God is good. We want to move with God. Because if we knew all he knew, knows, 
we, we would answer our own prayers the way he does, the way he will, and we can trust him. And then this of uh, Robert McShane, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, because Christ, we're told, intercedes for us. So he kind of pictures it spatially, geographically. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. For a fourth thing, our mindset matters. Arrogance is a mindset. Pride is a mindset. What is a mindset? Well, a mindset is simply this. It's what I set my mind on. That's a mindset. So if you set your mind on stupid things, you're gonna have a stupid mindset. If you set your mind on things that don't last, don't matter, then your mind, your life is gonna be full of stuff that doesn't last and doesn't matter. It's as simple as that. Do you ever read quotes? I'll bet, the, you know, who isn't on social media in some way? Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. People put quotes out there, right? Some of them are really cool and you go, whoa, that's a good quote, right? That opens my eyes to something important. That matters. That, you know, yeah, I should make that a part of the way I navigate and conduct my life. Now, see, that's a mindset. But do we set our mind on those things? And most of all, what I'm trying to say is we need to set our mind on the things that God reveals about himself. That way, Paul talks about this when he talks about not being blown here and there by every wind of doctrine because he wants you to be able to stand firm no matter what's going on around. Whether it looks good or bad, favorable or unfavorable, you're solid because you have this mindset that is based on God, his truth, And that is what guides you through the storm. Like when I backpack, I use a compass or GPS when I can't make out the territory. It keeps me going. You know, sailors with sextants or GPS now. Everything has to be changed to GPS, I guess. But they're out on a sea where they can't see anything. Or pilots who fly by their instrumentation at night or in a fog. That's how we do it. It's called faith. Our mindset matters. I like to say make it a great day, not have a great day. Well, have a great day. Have the day you're going to have anyway. That's what you're saying. (laughs) No, I I like to make it a great day. Because in Christ, we have that ability. We aren't a pawn being pushed around. We're in the hands of the Lord. Life is a gift, the precious present. Listen, I had more to say, but when I say, Lord willing, let me just say this. You... You can only make him Lord 
of your life one moment at a time. We know he's Lord, right? The Bible says he's Lord. People down through the years say he's Lord. If I don't say he's Lord, you'll get on me because you say he's Lord, right? But when is he Lord of you? He's Lord of everything and everyone all the time, but when is he Lord of you? When is he Lord of me? That's the question I ask. He can't be the Lord of me except right now. I want you to understand that. There's only one moment that he can be your Lord, and that's now, and then the next now, and the next now, and the now after that, in the moment. And that's why we have to consciously trust him in the moments of our lives and turn to him. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer. I want to remind you, I'll be up here along with the pastoral staff and elders and deacons and their spouses. If you'd like to pray with any of us, ask us to pray for you or for our friend. But most of all, if you want to make Jesus Lord, it happens not yesterday or tomorrow. It happens now. What's he trying to say to you this morning about your life, about people in your life? the things you're doing with your life. He's not Lord because we put him off. We say tomorrow, next time. You're eternal, I figure you'll be around. That's not the way it works. He'll never be your Lord if there aren't moments like now, when you say, I'm going to make you Lord. I'm going to acknowledge you as Lord. I'm going to turn my life over to you and trust you. Otherwise, every time you deny that, it's going to get harder and harder and harder and harder, and then it's going to be impossible for you to ever say, you are Lord, not me. So, If the Lord's been speaking to you this morning, you need to come and pray. Do something about it in the name of the Lord. Heavenly Father, to this we say, amen. And all the God's people said,